National Catholic Register. This is Register Radio, bringing light and clarity to the news and topics that affect your life. Ten years ago, on March 13th, the 265th successor of Peter walked out for the first time onto the Balcony of Blessing at St. Peter's Basilica in the Vatican. Before he gave his customary first blessing as the new Bishop of Rome, he asked for a favor, that is, for us to pray for him. This 10th anniversary of Pope Francis last week reminds us we should renew our prayers for our Holy Father. On today's show, Register columnist Father Raymond D'Souza examines the highlights and some lowlights of Pope Francis's pontificate. And then, along with Register senior editor Jonathan Liedel, we look at one of Pope Francis's biggest challenges, the German Synodal Way. I'm Jeanette Mello, Executive Director of the National Catholic Register and host of Register Radio. I'm joined by my co-host, Matthew Bunsen, Executive Editor of EWTN News. Hi, Matthew. Hello, good to be with you, and a happy anniversary. Yes, that's true. It, it has been a good anniversary. EWTN has, has really been highlighting this all week. Uh, I think there have been uh, uh, quite a bit at EWTN News. What have you seen? Well, I think we've seen uh, a coverage uh, across the board that uh, is marking not just uh, the 10th anniversary, but the very uniqueness of this pontificate. Uh, the first Jesuit, the, the first uh, pope from the Western Hemisphere, the p- first Latin American pope, but also the remarkable and unprecedented nature of this pontificate grounded in mercy, in the, the concern for the peripheries, and then, of course, now the dominant theme of this pontificate, synodality. Absolutely. And I'm going to turn again to prayer. You know, every day you are aware, every day the Register team starts our daily editorial call with this prayer. It's a prayer for the Pope. Lord Jesus, shelter our Holy Father, the Pope, under the protection of your sacred heart. Be his light, his strength, and his consolation. And that that enters to into our every day. And I hope uh, that it, it is reflected in the way we cover the Holy Father. Um, uh, Father Roger Landry wrote a wonderful guest editorial at the Register inviting Catholics to continue this prayer, uh, praying for the Holy Father, just like Francis asked us uh, at his, you know, on the balcony the first evening of his papacy. But he asks, asks this at nearly every audience, please pray for me. Uh, and so that's what, that's what we kind of start this in, uh, this conversation in, the spirit of prayer. Um, you know, we're talking about highlights and some lowlights, and I think that's a fair way uh, to look at these 10 years. Uh, Father Raymond D'Souza joins us now. Uh, of course, he is a, a longtime Register columnist and, and many years ago um, started working at the Register in Rome uh, as a kind of a Vaticanista while he was a seminarian. Uh, Father Raymond, welcome back to Register Radio. Jeanette, good to be with you. Uh, hello, Matthew. And, and so, Father Raymond, you've, really, you've written a story nearly every other day uh, this last week on Pope Francis, uh, so it may be hard to summarize in, in this segment, uh, you know, all that you've been discussing in our pages, and I, uh, of course, uh, invite our listeners to go to ncregister.com to read what you have, have said there, because it's, it's really been um, thought-provoking. Oh, let's start with talking about what you would say uh, Francis's strengths have been. Well, I think that, you know, Matthew mentioned there the priority of mercy, um, the jubilee of mercy, he called, the special jubilee for mercy. He's spoken a lot about the sacrament of mercy, confession, he talks about it a lot. 
and the Corporal Works Diversity, uh, which he's probably best known for in the wider world. You know, the uh, care for the poor, for the refugee, for those in prison. He's visited many prisons. Um, uh, for the afflicted, those by war, natural disaster. So I think that that face of mercy uh, is probably what is the strength of the pontificate and the impact he's made. And I think, interestingly enough, where there have been difficulties is when mercy is construed as something as opposed uh, to the uh, the truth in general, or more specifically, the truths of the gospel preached by the Lord Jesus. I'm, you mentioned that later in your program you're going to talk about the German uh, citadel way, and I'd probably say that's at the heart of it, is they construe mercy there as being opposed to the truths of the faith. So on both, you know, if you want to say highlights and lowlights, I would say that the highlight for sure is the um, the lifting up of mercy, which you know St. Thomas Aquinas called a long time ago, you know, the perfect, uh, the most perfect name for God. And probably the difficulties have come when that mercy is is misconstrued. So you might say, like many things in life, the, the difficulties or the weakness is the flip side of the strength. Absolutely. And I'll kind of use two phrases I've heard, um, maybe titles that, that people have, have identified this, how they've identified this papacy. So I've heard some say this is a, a pontificate of the peripheries. And I think that certainly can be true from, from the trips that the Pope has taken uh, to places um, perhaps never uh, gone to before, <laughs> the Pope has never gone to before, or cardinals from, from the peripheries, and, and just a, a great emphasis on that. But we've also uh, heard, and, and this was a recent column of yours, the pontificate of power. And that's really interesting, uh, you know, the, the phrase that you examine in that column. And you make a point about uh, uh, Francis being the first Jesuit elected pope, uh, and that as a Jesuit, he exercises authority in a particular way. And, and you say it's as a Jesuit superior would. This, his governance has indeed been a point of criticism. I, you know, you, you hear of it being a bit authoritarian, um, that while he preaches um, kind of decentralization, he makes um, decisions, it seems, in a very centralized way. So, you know, how does, he, how does he govern as a Jesuit superior? What are some examples of that, and what are some pitfalls? Well, the historians of the modern papacy, uh, I've read, some of them suggest that you have to go back to uh, before Pius IX to find a papacy that acted so much on the Pope's personal initiative. Um, and as you know, much of his legislation is done in what we call the motu proprio, the personal initiative of the Pope. Why I wrote what I did about the Jesuit dimension is that different congregations are governed in different ways uh, that have different degrees of uh, power, authority, in local councils, in local abbeys. So the Benedictines, you know, very ancient, the Benedictines, uh, they, have a Nash, they have a global sort of, you know, um, confederation, but each abbey is quite independent, quite autonomous. Um, the Jesuits are have always been distinctive since their founding under St. Ignatius in the 16th century, uh, that the Father General in Rome and the Provincial in a particular province has a lot of power, and he decides on his own 
and he appoints many of his counselors, and that mode of hearing people and then deciding is really how Pope Francis has worked, and we saw that early on when he appointed a council of nine cardinals um, to advise him, but in a direct way, meeting on his schedule or the schedule he set out for them, answerable only to him, and then he would take the decisions. Even though, of course, there's a whole Roman Curia and all kinds of bishops around the world, that was how he chose to implement it. Uh, What we've seen uh, recently that's caused a lot of people to comment on a discrepancy is that uh, there's a lot of talk about synodality and consultation, but then we see certain things uh, coming from Rome which are very specific in in the decision-making reserved to Rome. And there have been several examples of that. I mentioned them in that uh, column on power, which show that there's a very centralizing tendency. So these two things are in in tension. There's no doubt about it. And even the whole process of synodality, as you know, uh, back when it was was just announced one day that there was this new synodal process that the whole Church was going to be involved in, and uh, no one knew about it until the day before, until the day that it was uh, announced. So that is a... there is that discrepancy at the heart of the pontificate, and uh, I think you find a key to it, not in politics per se, but in uh, in Jesuit modes of governance, which is indicative, and of course there's a lot of Jesuits who are key players in this pontificate, so they would operate in that kind of ways, that you make the case to the Father General or the Provincial, and then he decides. You mentioned uh, the Council of Cardinals and the Roman Curia. Uh, both have been key uh, focuses for Pope Francis in one of the things that he was elected uh, to do, and that was to bring extensive reforms to the not just the structure and the finances of the church, but also dealing with the clergy sexual abuse crisis. On that very wide front of reform, how do you think he's done? Well, there you see exactly a good example of this. In 2014, when Pope Francis took the very bold step of creating a new secretariat for the economy, appointed Cardinal Pell to be the head of it, uh, Cardinal Perlin, the Secretary of State, didn't know about it. He found out about it when it was publicly announced. Uh, all the authority that used to be his that wasn't going to be. And then two years later, when a lot of the authority of the new Secretariat was uh, transferred away from Cardinal Pell's uh, office, uh, Cardinal Pell didn't know about it. Uh, so both senior men were blindsided at different times, and it reflected who happened to persuade the Holy Father at that moment um, you know, prevailed. So that so there's been a lot of fits and starts on the sexual abuse file and the financial reform file. I think now uh, we largely see in the financial reform file a return to some of the earlier initiatives, so I think you'd have to see genuine progress is being made there. On the sexual abuse file, again, genuine progress has been made. Uh, but what you have when you have a number of um, high-profile reversals of decisions is you begin to wonder if it's going to stick or if it's, if, if it's got anything more than the current uh, support of the Holy Father. So that's why some people are a little bit nervous. I think you'd have to concede that on both those two files, uh, the genuine progress um, has been made. Uh, a lot of legislation, a lot of uh, changes. One of the biggest projects that stretches back maybe more than 20 years was the whole reform of the penalties section of canon law. It's called Book 6. Uh, Francis brought that to a conclusion. And that's a very that's a very big step 
uh, in the life of the church on how to penalize, you know, canonical crimes. So I would say a lot of progress has been made, but because of these sometimes high-profile, you know, reversals or individual cases, uh, people may lack, people may have less confidence there than they, than they might otherwise have. Uh, Father Raymond, I want to bring up one more, I think, important thing. Obviously, our audience is predominantly a U.S. audience, mm-hmm. and there have been a lot of, um, I guess, back and forth. You know, there's always two sides of a coin, but there have been a lot of uh, uh, criticisms that the Holy Father does not understand the United States or the uh, or the mm-hmm. Church in America. I don't know that the general public it really has noticed that. I mean, maybe it's something that's sort of inside baseball for uh, right. Catholics who work in the media. It, I, I saw one statistic in, in 2021 that 63% of U.S. adults responding to Pew Research Center said they were very, or, or mostly favor, they had a mostly favorable opinion of Pope Francis, and then 82% of Catholics had a favorable opinion of the Pope. So, I, I, again, I, I, I say this a bit lightly, and maybe it's too much inside baseball, but what do you make of the Holy Father's um, kind of uh, perceptions of the U.S. or how he is perceived um, to like or dislike the, the U.S.? I'll give a long answer and a short answer. The long answer in terms of time is that really since Pius VI in the early 19th century, so 200 years, uh, Catholics have looked to Rome, have uh, known that the Holy Father is an important part of the life and the health of the Church, and have, and have had a very favorable disposition towards him. And so, uh, if anything, 63% or 82% might be on the low side, because you expect almost, you know, very high numbers. Local parishioners have a very favorable view of whoever the Pope is. And I think some of the things of which Francis has, be- has communicated well, the, that uh, the tenderness and mercy um, have been well received. If you look more carefully at the bishops of the Church, the seminaries in the United States, the bishops in the United States, and so forth, that's when you'd see, okay, it seems that the priorities of some specific things are not as well reflected. And um, and the most prominent example of that would be that in the cardinals that, um, that the Pope Francis has selected from the U.S. residential cardinals, Cardinal Stupich in Chicago, Cardinal Tobin in, in Newark, and Cardinal McElroy in San Diego, uh, they very clearly do not speak with the majority of the bishops of the United States on their side. Mm-hmm. Now, is that a problem? Well, if you go back to 1984, when Cardinal O'Connor was appointed in New York, you could say maybe it was the same same thing under John Paul. So it's not necessarily something to worry about, uh, but on another hand, that's the fact. Is right. that you've got... Um, you know, the cardinals that Pope Francis has chosen to represent his vision in the United States are not in the majority um, on some points, on some points. So, and if you're in the news business, um, that's something you pay attention to. So right. you're, you're, I think both parts of your premise are correct, is that there is widespread support and affection for the Pope, as there would be for any Pope. Um, but there are points of conflict. I would just make one final point. In the Pope Francis, not just with this synod on synodality, which is going on for several years, but he's, he's chosen the synod 
as key areas of initiative for him. And that means, by the design of it, that you hear a lot of different voices, and therefore there's going to be disagreements, and sometimes those disagreements can be pointed. And so in countries which have large, well-operating professional Catholic media operations, for example, the United States, for example, Germany, all of that discussion gets amplified and um, gives Uh, or amplifies the reality of disagreement. So it's partly a function of how he's chosen to operate. Um, If you consider those initiatives that didn't come out of a synodal process, so for example, the Jubilee of Mercy, um, the Holy Father's letter on holiness, for example, uh, you know, there's not a lot of conflict there. You know, you don't see a lot of conflict. But those things like on marriage and the family, um, on the Amazon region, uh, now on this synodal process, where you choose that mode of proceeding, uh, you get disagreements and they're amplified, especially in countries that have a very you know robust Catholic media. Fascinating. Father Raymond D'Souza, you've had a lot to say on this 10-year anniversary of Pope Francis, and I invite our readers to go to ncregistered.com. And, and look up uh, the articles written by Father Raymond on this 10th anniversary. I'll point out my favorite, and that is The Promise of Pope Francis's Papacy Partially Realized. Thank you, Father Raymond. We're good. Thank you, Jeanette. Thank you, Matthew. When we come back, Register Senior Editor Jonathan Liedel joins us from Germany to discuss the Synodal Way. This is Register Radio on EWTN. Stay tuned. For nearly a century, the National Catholic Register has been moving minds, moving hearts, moving souls, and enriching our readers' lives by spreading the truth of the gospel. Today, that tradition continues with award-winning journalism that goes beyond any secular news service while bringing much-needed light and clarity to the issues and events that affect you and your family's future, all with faithful and courageous reporting guided by the teachings of the Catholic Church. It's more important than ever to join Catholics who depend on the register. Get six free issues today online at ncregister.com forward slash radio or call 800-421-3230 and mention code radio. That's ncregister.com forward slash radio or call 800-421-3230 and mention code radio. The National Catholic Register. Read faithfully. Let's return to Register Radio on EWTN. Welcome back. I'm Jeanette Mello, the Executive Director of the National Catholic Register. I'm joined here on Register Radio by Matthew Bunsen, EWTN News' Executive Editor. The German Synodal Way has voted to adopt implementation texts related to same-sex blessings, lay preaching during Mass, and a request for Pope Francis to re-examine the discipline of priestly celibacy in the Latin Rite of the Catholic Church. So these votes took place during uh, the days of the Fifth Synodal Assembly in Frankfurt, Germany, And we're talking, of course, about the synodal way in Germany, not uh, the synod on synodality, to to be very, very clear. So this German uh, assembly met March 9th through 11th, I think it was, to conclude at the conclusion of a three-year process. And many have 
have said that this process is advancing heterodoxical ideas, and I think you heard a few in that introduction. They even say, some the strongest critics say that this is really promoting schism, and, and it, they fear that uh, many German dioceses and the universal, universal Church will be at a point of schism soon. So Jonathan Liedel, registers, the Register's senior editor, is in Germany now and has been covering this event and has also been touring Germany to kind of get a taste uh, on the ground of, of what's happening there. Hello, Jonathan. It's great to talk to you. Great to be with you, Jeanette and Matthew. So first of all, you were there. Uh, there's nothing like being on location um, to get a feel for what's happening, much more than just us reading the texts that come out of the German synodal process. So, Jonathan, can you describe, first of all, how this assembly is composed? Who's there? How do they meet? What's the format? Uh, who isn't there? <laughs> uh. Yeah, well, that's that's a great question, Jeanette. So this assembly, uh, as you mentioned, was the fifth meeting uh, of delegates and bishops uh, as part of uh, the synodal way process in Germany. So it's, it's a process that was initiated in 2019. Uh, it is sort of co-led by the German uh, Catholic Bishops Conference, but also uh, something called the Central Committee for German Catholics, which is a very powerful and influential lay group uh, in, in Germany, in the German Catholic Church that has a lot of influence and a lot of power. Um, so at this assembly, uh, there are about 220 delegates, and they include all the bishops in Germany, so the 27 ordinaries of the Diocese of Germany, and then a number of auxiliaries as well, so about 60 bishops total, um, and then uh, an immense amount of uh, lay delegates kind of making up the remaining 220. But kind of as you alluded to, uh, I think there's lots of questions about the composition uh, of, of the lay delegates in particular and whether they are representative um, not just of and uh, not just representative of the 22 million people in Germany who check the box as Catholic, but really those Catholics who are, are practicing their faith are going to mass um, and accept the teachings of Rome. Of course, in Germany uh, right now, only five percent of uh, those 22 million people uh, are going to mass on Sunday, um, and so kind of as you're alluding to, there are actually a number of significant defections before this particular assembly in Frankfurt. Um, a priest from the Archdiocese of Cologne said he wouldn't participate anymore because uh, he, he thought the whole process was advancing a prearranged agenda. And then also four laywomen, including two theologians, recipients of the Ratzinger Award in Theology, also uh, before proceedings began, announced that they would not be participating anymore. Um, given their concern that the whole process was calling into doubt uh, fundamental questions uh, about about Catholic theology. Um, so yeah, that's that's kind of the, the body of it. It's really, to be quite frank, attending the proceedings and being there in person, uh, it strikes you as, as far more of a political thing um, than anything else. Um, I think the, a couple things to, to highlight maybe, um, you know, in the, in the U.S., we certainly get the headlines, right? We get the, the proposals that get passed and what they call for. But I think on the ground, you really get a sense uh, of how much, um, I, I would say, I don't think this is too strong, but how, how much manipulation um, is exerted uh, in the process, particularly on the bishops to get them to vote in a way 
um, that this powerful lay organization wants them to vote. Um, and then you also get a sense really listening to the discussions from the floor um, about how I think the fundamental crisis in Germany isn't about, you know, blessings for same-sex couples or whether women be can become priests, but really a much deeper question, which is what, whether or not, uh, you know, Jesus Christ, uh, the incarnate word of the Father, whether he can reach us and our lives today through scripture, through tradition, mediated by the church. I think underneath this whole process is just a different theological vision uh, that inevitably leads to the problematic uh, conclusions that, that we've talked about. Bishop Georg Batesing, the uh, president of the German Bishops' Conference, used that now famous phrase in the ad limina visit of the bishops to the Vatican just not too long ago, that we want to be Catholic, but Catholics of a different kind. Is this what he meant? I mean, is, was he satisfied with the results of this? And what does this tell us about the state of the episcopacy in Germany? Yeah, I think someone like Bishop Batzing would be pretty satisfied with the results because it moved the ball forward on many of these uh, implementation texts, um, you know, that, that we've talked about. Uh, but something very important that didn't happen at this assembly was that uh, a vote to establish a permanent synodal council. So this would be a body composed of lay people and bishops that would effectively govern the church on a national level. And the lay people, uh, lay people would have the capacity to override, to veto the bishops um, if they wanted. Um, that, that was delayed, it wasn't voted on. Now, why wasn't that one of all the other ones voted on? Because back in December, five German bishops wrote to the Vatican and they, they simply said, um, we're concerned about uh, th this dimension. We're concerned about many other things going on here. But this specific dimension, um, the establishment of a synodal council that really undermines um, you know, the, the dogma of apostolic succession and the significance of, of bishops as shepherds of the church, the Vatican did intervene. Uh, a letter was sent to the German bishops from three significant cardinals uh, in the, the Curia in Rome. So Cardinal Pietro Perolin, who's the Secretary of State, uh, and Cardinal Mark Ouellette uh, and Cardinal Louis Ladaria, um, basically telling the Germans that that was the red line they couldn't cross. And so something th that's really clear is that uh, people like uh, Bishop Batzing um, are concerned with certainly advancing these heterodoxical ideas, but also um, not not perhaps pushing too far to where they, they provoke a response from the Vatican. So it's it's kind of a game of a ecclesial chicken, if yeah. I can say that. Who's going to blink first? And I think the I think the the leadership of, of the Synodal Way is very confident that they they kind of called the Vatican's bluff uh, yeah. and that they pushed a lot of things forward. But on the one thing that they were kind of told don't cross this line, they went right up to it. Um, they put things in motion to establish that synodal council, um, but without crossing it. And now their focus is on bringing the issue to the universal church and gaining support uh, for their initiatives, especially with the upcoming synod on synodality uh, taking place in October. Jonathan, I want to end on an, a positive note. Now, there's a lot of dire uh, words in, in that description, and, and I think we rightly need to be concerned, but not all of Germany is in a place of dissension. Uh, you've seen some bright lights. You've gone to the Diocese of Passau, 
I don't know how you say that properly, but that's um, how I've been saying it, Jeanette. So we'll we'll just go with that. <laughs> okay. Can you just give me one light of hope from that? We only have about a minute left. Yeah, absolutely. I, yeah, there are, you know, there are these oases of of, of faith, of spirituality, of union with Rome. Um, and I was really encouraged in my own personal faith to see people uh, in the Diocese of Passau where, where Bishop Stephen Oster, one of the bishops who's proposed, or excuse me, opposed uh, the proposal of the Synodal Way and, and wrote to Rome asking for help. He's really tried to launch, um, you know, a, a mission of new evangelization because that's really the reality of Germany. It is a country with such deep Catholic roots, especially in Bavaria, especially in the Rhineland and Cologne. Um, but it's a place that has really kind of lost the core of the faith, which is that relationship with Jesus Christ. So there are efforts on the ground um, to revitalize that. They they will face difficulties uh, coming forward. But I think it's been very encouraging for me and hopefully encouraging for our audience uh, to think about ways that they can support um, the signs of life uh, in, in the German Catholic Church through prayers and, and other means. Well, Jonathan, I'm glad you're on the ground. I'm thankful for your Twitter feed that's been been showing us um, some of the good and, and, and also highlighting these places we wouldn't normally be thinking about. And we can can join in the, I guess, the spiritual battle that is at place here. Yeah, it's thanks been for, must viewing on Twitter. Absolutely. Thanks, thanks for what you're doing. Thanks to both of you. Remember, for more news, analysis, and commentary, check out the National Catholic Register online at ncregister.com. Thanks for joining us on Register Radio here on EWTN. For Matthew Bunsen and our producer, Michael McCall, I'm Jeanette DeMello. Until next week, God bless you.